Warm greetings to our listeners. It is April the 1st, 2020. This is Geraldine Joseph of the CSEN Center, Senior Analyst in charge of developing and delivering programs in the central banking leadership and governance domain. Our guest for today's podcast on establishing sound governance arrangements for central banks is Professor Dr. Didier Cossagne, Founder and Director of the Global Board Center of the International Institute for Management Development, or better known as IMD Switzerland, and Professor of Finance and Governance at IMD. Professor Kalsine is the originator of the four pillars of board effectiveness methodology and a fervent advocate of stewardship. He is in particular highly regarded on the global stage as an expert in the area of enhancing board effectiveness to drive greater organizational impact. Thank you very much, Professor Corsine, for accepting to be my guest on this podcast. How are you? It must be a beautiful spring day where you are. It is indeed. It's a pleasure to be with you, Geraldine. Happy to know that you are doing fine. Well, listeners, over the course of my conversation with the good professor, he'll be sharing with us his perspectives based on his very own framework on the four pillars for effective central bank governance. If I may kickstart our conversation first, Professor, let me ask you, in this current landscape of volatility and uncertainty emanating amongst others from the COVID-19 pandemic and technological acceleration, how do you view stakeholders' expectations on central banks? particularly that of the public at large and government. These are incredible times, Geraldine. The governance of central banks is indeed dearly challenged by stakeholders and society. Central banks have lost the clarity of their mandate. They're losing their independence and they are expected to fulfill social and political responsibilities without corresponding legitimacy and power. I personally believe these three key challenges to central bank governance may well trigger monetary or currency regime shift. And all central banks around the world face this triple governance challenge. This creates a true erosion of the quality of governance in central banks. And thus this podcast is particularly well-timed, I would say. It's alarming to note that central banks are losing their clarity on mandates. From your research, Professor, what are the key lessons that you have distilled on central bank governance successes and failures around the world? Well, first, if we look at these three dimensions that I just mentioned, the ambiguity of mandates, the the aim of central bank used to be very clear right to keep prices stable then this mandate began to change and evolved towards dual mandates like economic growth and job creation 
there is a rising suspicion that mandates can no longer be purely technical, social well-being, sustainability, environmental action, even industrial policies could be part of them. And central banks are now creating winners and losers in the socio-economic world. And this is making their mandates increasingly complex and ambiguous. If we're thinking about the second dimension, the erosion of independence, independence of central banks used to be sacrosanct. Uh, it guaranteed a technocrat perspective around a well-defined technical, non-political objective. Today, we have a politicization of appointments. Even removal from office is a possibility. Some individual central bankers also seem to aspire to the political role and the grandstanding that comes with it. And these forces fundamentally transform what good governance should be by necessarily shifting power internally to boards rather than the individual. It also enhances system governance through bodies such as financial stability committees. An immediate consequence is the loss of power of the typical central bank, ironically, at the very time they're considered the most powerful economic actors in each country. And finally, the third dimension, the rise of social and political responsibilities that we see well during this pandemic, the actions of central banks can no longer be considered socially or even politically neutral. Keeping interest rates low during the previous crisis affected sustainability of pension funds, and it favored yield-seeking private actors such, such as private equity funds. Emergency actions cannot be seen as neutral either, and social trust in central banks has been affected. Expectations are for them to act responsibly in terms of maintaining financial health of the population. And thus we come back to the, what I would call the classics of governance in terms of successes and failures. And where we see boards failing and governance failing is typically around four dimensions. The first one is technical risks and the understanding of risks beyond the classics of risks, I would say interest rates, et cetera. And we're seeing that so predominantly here. The second one is strategy. How do you achieve and how do you tune your organization to achieve? The third one is a relationship between executive and non-executive, which is absolutely central to quality governance, including the independence of view of non-executives. And the fourth one is simply integrity and ethics, which also is challenged in today's world. So I could give examples of failures, maybe we don't have the time for that, but these failures have been common in, in all these four dimensions of risks, strategy, relations between executive and non-executives, and integrity, which will expand a bit further into values. Thank you for that pull-no-punches narrative on central banks, Professor. As a follow-through from that, please provide us with the context for your framework of the four pillars for effective central bank governance. What are the key factors that led you to developing the framework? And how did you arrive at assembling the building blocks for the framework? So this is a very pragmatic work eh, which, uh, for which I've been engaged with uh, uh, central banks around the world, but other, other actors as well, ministries, uh, large corporates, uh, sovereign wealth funds, 
I've been thinking about the complexity and the, the new dynamics, the new realities that we are facing these days, uh, including technology, uh, the inequality, social instability, and the geopolitics, all of these that are engaged, of course, during the current crisis. And when you think about governance, governance is really the art of decision-making at the very top of organizations. And interacting with central banks around the world, I've started figuring out some very basic dysfunctions. For example, the fact that we have often dominated boards, uh, boards that are actually not free to say what they want or what they can. We also have boards that sometimes are micromanaging or others that are completely passive. And thus, you know, reflecting on the four areas that I described, and myself and my team, we, we've worked on, on developing, if you want, a framework that allows us to assess the health of a central bank governance very quickly. Uh, how, how do we have a tool to diagnose very, very quickly during a discussion with a chair, with a discussion with a few board members, what creates good governance and how good that central bank is in terms of governance. And we figured out there are four pillars to that. The first pillar is, is truly the principles or, or the values behind, if you want. And, and typically three of them dominate, clarity and transparency, independence and accountability. The second pillar is the people and the quality of the people engaged, but also their diversity and, and their dedication and, and what do they focus on. And the third pillar is structures and processes. And finally, the fourth pillar is, is truly the governance culture and the dynamics of decision making and of discussions that are engaged at board and executive level. Interesting. If we could now turn our attention to the first pillar, which is on principles. What are the factors that make for this pillar and how do they speak specifically to a central bank? Mm -hmm. Very good. So first, you know, I should say that uh, I, I typically survey members of uh, boards or executives of uh, central banks. And uh, it is a typical answer to have that uh, the governance is ineffective because people are poorly informed, or there is domination by management or domination by government or by specific stakeholder. And we're talking about more than 50% of those surveyed that declare uh, inefficiencies of this type. And so principles uh, still have to be at the heart of governance. And for central banks in particular, I would say clarity and transparency uh, as a first principle, independence as a second principle, and accountability and legitimacy as a third principle are truly central. And these are very specific to uh, central banking. Obviously, we've talked already about the ambiguity of mandates, which uh, has increased notably because of the low inflation uh, environment and, and the current risk of uh, deflation. 
but that combines with uh, transparency and uh, and we all know the advantages of transparency the uh, uh, transparency enhances alignment in anchors expectations including inflation expectations it enhances credibility reputation and also flexibility and agility that are so important in today's world and it enhances anticipation of uh, policies and so transparency is uh, is uh, absolutely central as well to uh, governance uh, principles for central banks we've already talked a bit about independence whether the ure or de facto and uh, and the fact of having explicit targets but also appointment procedures dismissal even ownership of the capital relationship with the state and timeliness of financial disclosures which will bring us clearly to accountability uh, all of these are not so obvious in the practice in theory it's straightforward but when when I ask a question such as, would you agree that all and objectives of the bank are clearly enunciated, I still get a good third to uh, disagree. Uh, and so things are not so clear. Things are not so clear. So, Prof, among the three elements that you just outlined, would you say there is a key driver of success and why so? Well, we used to take independence at the heart of things, huh? uh, but uh, I believe, unfortunately, this uh, uh, th this bridge has gone. Um, and independence is still important. Huh? I'm certainly not going to be uh, uh, taking independence out of the principles. But I believe that accountability and legitimacy uh, have become essential. And somehow central banks have lost some of their credibility there. And uh, I believe it's high time for them to enhance uh, transparency, accountability, and uh, legitimacy by having clear examples of success, clear KPIs, especially around the non-monetary objectives that they have to take today because of the stakeholder pressures we've described before. In a sense, it might be challenging to assess if the principles component is well adhered to. How could a central bank ensure that it is on the right track to achieving institutional excellence on this front? Well, I believe this this is well done by surveys, by using externals. It's it's a whole process of governance improvement around these dimensions as well. And I'm always surprised when I interact, even with very uh, senior executives of central banks, at how little is done at simply surveying where people stand in terms of these principles and that creating a culture in which people can speak up and uh, people can express themselves and also at providing the tools that allow to follow up on the different dimensions. And so being an organization that is professional at surveying and following up 
is part now of uh, central bank uh, central responsibility. That very nicely brings us to your second pillar, which is on people. What does that people pillar comprise of? So the people, obviously, we need the quality individuals and, and most of my work is with boards. So I pay specific attention to uh, the boards of uh, central bank. And as you know, we have many different types of structures of boards of central bank. But overall, whatever the structure, the quality in terms of competencies, but also in terms of personalities, uh, is is central, but to add to that, this is not enough today. Huh? Competency is not enough. We also need diversity, and diversity brings a lot of value in terms of creativity and innovation. And I'm not talking only of uh, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, but simply of diversity of perspectives. I would include age diversity, and diversity is not easy to achieve. And then you have to add to that the level of dedication of the individuals. I see too many boards that are still passive. And what do people focus on? So are people, are the participants paying attention to the right topic, to, for example, the non-economic risks? And so we have today four dimensions, sub-dimensions under the people pillar, quality, diversity, focus and dedication. Wonderful. Is there any particular model that you have drawn up that could offer some form of guidance for the people pillar? So we, we use many different uh, models, uh, for example, uh, for competencies, uh, as well as diversity, we use skill maps, uh, which can be well adapted to each central bank particular context. Uh, and this is important to realize. Uh, uh, governance is not mantras. Governance needs to be adapted to the particular central bank context. And so it's not copy-paste. Uh, but also, you know, we use surveys. I have, you know, uh, uh, typical surveys available at my, uh, within my team. And, and some of these surveys are highly revealing, for example, of the lack of preparedness uh, of board members coming to meetings. Uh, it's quite impressive that uh, typically board members self-declare as not well prepared to meetings of central banks or uh, at looking at the percentage of board meeting time that is spent simply at listening to presentations which tends to be more than half of the time of central banks. And it's very hard to have the focus on the right topics if you just listen. Uh, clearly, a board is there to decide. Remember, governance is about the quality of decision making. And so if you just listen, you contribute very little to decision. In your view, Prof, how is diversity different from inclusion in the talent space? And why would these aspects matter for a central bank? To some extent, you've talked about diversity earlier, but it'll be good to find out how do you view the difference between diversity and inclusion? Well, obviously, uh, good diversity is painful. Inclusion, not necessarily so. 
let me explain. Good diversity. And remember, you're, you're tackling a small number of people. And so you have to optimize diversity. Good diversity is painful because it has to engage a confrontation of perspectives. It has to engage what I would call a dialectic process, which is a way to go towards the right decisions. Inclusion is about minorities. It's about representation. And all of that can contribute to diversity. But when I think of diversity, I may also include, for example, diversity of personalities. Someone conservative is best associated to the board, on the board, with someone who's open to experience and quite innovative. And typically, these two individuals will have a hard time engaging in a productive discussion. But it is that difficulty itself that creates the productivity of the discussion. There is a lot of discussion today on the need for board diversity indeed. As a woman, I'm curious to find out if boards are any better with women. What does the evidence show us? So it's obvious and gender diversity first is an easy diversity and it's a powerful diversity. It's a successful diversity. So boards with gender diversity have, uh, have typical advantages. For example, they tend to be better at following up strategy implementation rather than only deciding on strategy. And we know that's a weakness of boards, following up rather than only deciding on the big, big topics. Uh, another advantage of gender diversity is that it, uh, it, it balances mental biases around large decisions. Uh, typically, large decisions are better made with gender diversity. Gender diversity also fosters a different culture of discussion on the board. Mind you, people are more respectful and that allows for more engaged discussion around the fundamental topics. And so we do find that gender diversity has material impact on the quality of the discussions and the quality of the decisions of central banks. So what in essence constitutes a strong board for a central bank? What are the major considerations in establishing a board that is effective? Uh, so typically first, uh, uh, what I mentioned in the pillar itself, right? So the, the composition, uh, but uh, don't, don't make the mistake, uh, there is no ideal composition. And composition has to be alive. And so we always have to assess the board on its composition uh, in terms of uh, agility, in terms of competencies, in terms of culture, even in terms of uh, social network and uh, of uh, values and integrity. And so it's a continuous process. It starts with an assessment, with a competency and personality maps, 
but uh, it's a continuous assessment of the need for the board and the quality of the board and the continuous education. You know, the best boards educate themselves regularly. And moving on to the third pillar on structures and processes. On structures, we see that the diversity of decision-making structures in central banking is not likely to coalesce around a single good practice model. What can be done, however, in more practical terms to make existing structures work better? So you're very right, Geraldine. There are many diverse structures for central banks, companies, supervised, single boards, double boards. And clearly some of the very successful central banks have very different committee structures, overall banking structures, and all of these are even now put within financial stability committees, which by themselves are re-challenging even the legacy structures that we have. And so what we have to pay attention to are more, in my view, the organizational processes that actually drive governance effectiveness. And these uh, include the classical list of processes, audit, risk, strategy process, succession and nomination with the sophistication often not fulfilled in central bank of doing a long, a short list, a, a professional search, ongoing effectiveness as a process as well, board orientation and training, even organizational culture that we discussed before is a process, onboarding and evaluation. And so we have many key organizational processes that uh, whatever the structure are required to be best in class. I take it that the processes you just mentioned are, in your view, the key organizational processes for a central bank. Am I right? That is correct. So a number of those processes that you mentioned can, can be deemed as core functions. Aside from the question of compatibility of specific functions, there might be merit for some optimum number of functions to be assigned to an organization. What are the key considerations when deciding on the number of functions for a central bank? So this is more leadership matter in my perspective, and it's uh, highly dependent on the ability of the leader. We, of course, you know, consider maximum number of reports, uh, typically you know, to be five to seven. And typically, we want organizational structures to follow this type of limitations. But I would pay attention to another dimension, uh, which is highly linked to integrity and speaking up, which is uh, the fact that we now need dual reporting for essential functions such as risk, audit, and even nomination and succession and I would argue even actually education, um, which uh, will engage non-executives because of the need for creativity and innovation, but also the need for resilience in front of pressures. Um, and so 
thinking about you know more complex reporting on these areas notably with linkages to committees and to chairs of committees is uh, essential as well some of what you mentioned professor will revolve around organizational culture and too often we have seen that internal central bank culture is overly technocratic or preoccupied with legacy management issues that crowd out strategic management and institutional governance reform. What could be done to better calibrate institutional governance within the culture of central banks? Mm -hmm. Very good. And I think for that, we need to actually promote the values of governance uh, and the principles of governance that we have described before within central banks. And that goes both ways. Huh? That goes by surveying where we stand in uh, terms of these uh, principles uh, that we described in our first pillar. It also means uh, education, uh, training, and uh, and a constant feedback loop all the way from the supervisory board to the executive board. And so it's, a, it's constant work because as you say rightly, culture has become the key driver of success. And thus the governance has to be embedded in the culture. We all know that central banks within their own country have often been a hallmark of uh, independence and integrity. And we have to keep that alive with the pressures that are surrounding uh, us. And so uh, it's a constant work that goes bottom up and top down, bottom up through surveys, top down through role modeling and education. And on the last pillar, which covers group dynamics and reinforcing governance culture, what are your guiding principles for ensuring good group dynamics, for example, among board members? And how is the governance culture reinforced in a board setting? Well, you know, some of the uh, basic principles of a quality board culture uh, engage directors' behaviors. We've already talked about independence and integrity, but there are more mechanical ones, such as equal participation and mutual respect, or openness and constructive dissent, as well as knowledge acceleration. All of these need to be kept in line by strong sharing. Sometimes there are difficulties with board members, huh? Uh, some that are micromanagers, some that are aggressive, some that are simply absentee, or that are overwhelmed and uh, passive. And that uh, requires a form of uh, uh, feedback, respect, and process. And a strong chair will stimulate discussion, will encourage questions, encourage persistence and dissent while building a real consensus, which means that the chair typically has different style of leadership depending on the context. Sometimes the chair can be legitimately, in my view, a commander, 
and other times it will be a catalyst or a coach. And so all of these should result in an energetic board where discussions are solid, where mental biases can be challenged, and where the discussions are conclusive and productive. Professor, at the end of the day, there's quite a bit of experimenting to be done, right, by a central bank before it arrives at an effective governance arrangement. What are your views? No, I think I think it's quite structured. If you think of it, and that's why I designed these four pillars, because governance is complex overall. But mm -hmm. once you are aware of these four pillars, that you check your principles, you check your people, you check your processes and structures, and you check your culture and the dynamics of the board. Actually, it's actually quite straightforward. And this is why now if I discuss, you know, even 10 minutes with a chair, I can figure out the main governance problems of that central bank or that organization within the 10 minutes. And typically you very quickly see whether there are political sensitivities or whether there is inappropriate allocation of time to issues or there is a, a inability to detach from operational issues, which are, if you want, the... Uh, the, the, the tip of the iceberg, the surface of the problem. But if you follow the four pillars and you engage around these through self-assessment, through a simple reflection from the chair or from uh, board members, you can actually progress in a systematic way the governance of the central bank. Brilliant. And if a central bank were to adopt this four-pillar governance framework, how can the framework in its entirety be assessed from time to time to measure its effectiveness in enabling institutional governance? You know, to me, governance is like health. And the, the better sign is progress rather than comparing ourselves to others. Each central bank is different. And so in my view, it's figuring, first, it's a certain level of dedication from the board, from the chair, to governance as a key driver of uh, success, which we know today it is, obviously. And so it's uh, how do we engage uh, a process of ongoing improvement? And for that, it's uh, simply, you know, surveys, uh, reflections around these dimensions of four pillars that we've described together. You are a proponent of transformational leadership. Please share with us how you define transformational leadership and what approaches need to be taken to make it work effectively to drive the underlying factors under each of the four pillars that we have covered. So today, uh, governance is necessary, leadership as well, and the fact that we've had uh, in the past a strong focus on leadership does not go away. And transformational leadership is really about the fact that people will follow a person who inspires them a person with vision and passion can achieve great things. 
and the way to get things done is by injecting enthusiasm and energy. This was defined by James Burns in the 70s, and the general steps followed by transformational leaders is indeed to empower followers, to nurture them, to become strong role models, to create a vision for the organization, to act as change agents, and to become social architects and bring people together. All of these are well supported by the four pillars. Uh, remember, the four pillars are about the governance dimension. So it's about the selection of the leader and the support to the leader and the supervision of the leader. And we have that throughout the dimensions, whether you look at the people side and their knowledge, whether you look at the principles that have to be embodied by the leader, whether you look at the processes and including performance review, which by the way, I did not mention before, but is, I had it in the nomination, but is indeed one of the key processes. And obviously, whether you look at the dynamics and culture of decision-making of the organization. Right. And in view of the COVID-19 global outbreak, what particular leadership and governance considerations do you espouse for central banks to prioritize in order to respond expeditiously to the prevailing circumstances? Clearly today, central banks have to be agile and creative. Mm -hmm. We have a, a speed that is required that is much beyond that we've lived before. And this also requires a form of coordination that can feel sometimes like a challenge to independence. And this is where we have to come back to what true independence is, independence of perspective. But we still need to coordinate for the well-being of our population and the well-being of our nations. And so I would say that governance and the principles of governance we have initiated are central to making solid decisions with agility and creativity. I like the way you summarize that. To wrap up, Professor, any parting shot for our listeners out there? Well, there is an easy one. Uh, governance is the ability to take the right decisions and we all participate to governance. And thus these principles that I've enunciated, these pillars, are valid for each and every one of us. We need to think about our values. We need to think about our knowledge and our competencies and our ability to accept diversity and to engage with diversity. We have to think about our own processes. And uh, clearly, we have to figure out how we organize ourselves in a culture that is dynamic and challenging to each other's in order to get to the right decisions together. Many thanks, Professor Kossain, for your candid responses to my questions. I think that was a very stimulating conversation. Thank you so much for obliging to do this podcast with me. And listeners, I do hope 
this podcast has offered you with a spectrum of learning points on strengthening central bank governance arrangements. Till we connect again, we wish you the very best in your efforts to champion institutional excellence. Stay safe and positive. Thank you for listening.